Hello, and welcome to another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. My name is Andrei Matyshak, and I work as the Deputy Head of Foreign Desk in Slovak Davy Pravda, which, by the way, means truth, and it's not Russian Pravda. What can a war do to the artist? I talked to the Ukrainian director, Alisa Kovalenko, about fighting Russians and making movies. She recently visited Slovakia, and the movie festival in Sved, One War, she presented her documentary, We Will Not Fade Away, which follows the lives of five teenagers from Donbass. Why does she say that she believes in victory, but she is a realist? And what had Alisa seen even before Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, Valery Zaluzhny, started to talk about it? Listen to our conversation. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on coffee. For the link, see also a description of this episode. And now, up to the new debate. Alisa, can you tell us a bit more about your documentary view not fade away? How it all started, how it was also interrupted by the full-scale Russian invasion, and why did you decide to finish it? It started in 2019. I met Valentin, a famous Ukrainian explorer. He made lots of projects for children, to develop sport for children. And he had a dream to organize kind of rehabilitation project for kids from frontline zone, from gray zone, for kids who like had dreams to travel, but never had a chance. And I found this dream so beautiful. And it's how we started actually to work together with Valentin. And we traveled a lot to Donbass. We met different children. We visited lots of schools. And also lots of kids, they wrote letters. There are territories very, very close to the line, you know, between occupied territories and like the closest actually villages and towns. And, um, but kids also wrote letters because Valentin made kind of open call for children, teenagers, and he received lots of letters and we were reading these letters and they also sent some selfie videos where like they talk about their lives, their dreams why they're so motivated to go to this expedition to the Himalayas. And after we had to select only five, probably the most like motivated and bright kids, teenagers. And after I started to film their life more deeply, spend more time with them. And at some moment I realized that this project is not anymore about expedition, about Valentin, but it's more about this routine life universe of teenagers who, despite of all circumstances and like, you know, grayness of the world, they try to like uh, enjoy life and realize their dreams and they try to illuminate this darkness around, these lights coming from their dreams. And um, yeah, and I wanted also to tell the story through the eyes of teenagers. That's why actually all this part, this preparation for expedition, it actually came a smaller part in the film. So you want you to focus on their lives? And we can say, it's not just about the war. They live in a region that is quite poor with mines and a post-industrial landscape. And they're also like working class kids, all of them. And uh, so it was also an important element because uh, actually mine industry, coal mine industry was collapsing and they had to find their way and reinvent themselves, uh, you know, like to decide 
whom they want to become. And for them, it was much more complicated than for kids from Kiev or like, you know, from more like normal environment. And I was amazed actually how these kids, despite like everything, they had so much joy inside themselves. They were not like depressed by, by the situations. They were trying to, I don't know, to go to, to find their way out. And that was the main thing I wanted to like show in this film. Because we often see some films about Donbass, super sad, depressing, like dark and but actually what was important for me is that this new generation, actually they can change completely Donbass and mentality of Donbass because I saw lots of light inside them. I understand that you wanted to create something contrasting to the, as you said, the dark and super depressed movies and documentaries about Donbass. But in 2022, the darkness really came in the form of the full-scale Russian invasion. So what happened to your protagonists? Yeah, I was actually thinking that this film will be in kind of light film with happy end. It's like, you know, that actually it's about the dreams can be realized and it doesn't matter in which hole you grow up. You can, you know, fight for your dreams and realize your dreams. But this film also became a film about broken dreams. Actually, the day when Full Scale War started, I was in train. I took night train from Kiev to Donbass to see my characters because escalation already started in Stanitsa Luganska, one of the places actually of like three of my characters. I was thinking maybe I can help with evacuation of some of characters. I didn't believe that full-scale war started. I was thinking that it will be escalation. Donbass, like eastern part of Ukraine, maybe the Parisia, Kharkiv, but I proposed to like families of Andre and Lisa that they maybe they could come to stay in my house in Kiev. Yeah, but when I was in train at five o'clock in the morning, my mother called me and said that the scale war started. Uh, I arrived in Rubizhne, Donbass, and the family of Andri, father uh, Andri, came to pick me up from train station. It was already kind of apocalyptic atmosphere. It was, it was already a big traffic jam. Lots of people were trying to escape. I don't know, some ambulances, cars, and tanks, and like, and we were actually driving with uh, Andre's father to Zolota 4. Zolota 4, it's actually a village really, really close to the front line. And on the radio, it was like every 30 minutes announcement that all people should be evacuated from this territory. And after I stayed like a few days with the family of Andre, and I realized that I cannot film anymore, I was so lost and I felt that I didn't feel any power as a director, you know, what you can do with your camera. And I felt that now it's not time for cinema, you know, like that you have to act and do something really useful. And I started how I can help with evacuation of my characters. And I had a friend, Benjamin director, who was also working in Donbass and had a Volkswagen T4. So we could put lots of people and we started to negotiate how we can help my characters to bring them out. But to families, Andres in Ruslan's family, they refused to be evacuated because they used this reality and they didn't feel the same level of danger as like people in Kiev. You know, it was dramatic. And we talked with our mother of Andre and she was crying and I was persuading her like that they should leave. For sure, like because like, okay, it's just a question of time when the Russians will occupy this uh, place. But they, yeah, they say, no, we want to stay. And Vova, father of Andrei, he even, he was uh, like for like two or three weeks, he was still going to work in mine. Like crazy. And after we talked with the family of Lisa, 
as they were already occupied. Stanisa Lugansk was like uh, occupied on the first day. And Lisa was in Kharkiv. She was studying and she was alone in the bomb shelter of her student's door. And yeah, we decided that you know, I can take Lisa and also her friend from Kharkiv. At the time, Kharkiv it was a really bad situation in Kharkiv. Like, it was also under um, like bomb bombardment. And uh, we brought Lisa to the border with uh, Poland. And we organized everything that our friends from Benjamin could take her and bring her to, to Ghent. And after, I just went to say goodbye to my mother and my son. And I went to fight and I joined a volunteer unit. So there were five main protagonists of your documentary. Do you still have a contact with them? Because some of them stayed at the territory that is occupied, right? Yes, uh, I had. Uh, no, this one I don't have at all. This one, with Ilya, he maybe seven months. That was, I think it was be- just before Rinali. He contacted me and he explained why he was like so silent. Yeah, he was really afraid that uh, Russian Secret Service can check him. And he, he cut it. Got all contacts and he cleaned his telephone. Yeah, and after he disappeared again. Let's hope that he's okay. And Alisa, you said that you joined voluntary unit. And of course, being a war is a huge effect on people. And you're also an artist trying to deal with human emotions. And now you are again trying to make movies. So, how much are you changed by the frontline experience as an artist? I think it's all this inner dilemma of like, you know, being a director who is like kind of observing or being an actor and this like movement. And I started with revolution when like uh, I was participant of revolution, but also I was documenting everything that was happening. And after I went to the front line 2014, I was in captivity. So it's like all kind of puzzle of uh, this inner dilemma, which I always had inside and it was growing. And I felt 2014 when I was filming also volunteer uni, I felt that uh, I actually want to participate and do something, do something real kind of, not just observe. And I gave promise to myself at the time that if this war will grow, I, then I will just... Um, put away camera and we'll go to fight. And uh, at the beginning of full-scale invasion, I felt that now I have to fulfill this promise. And it was a very clear decision for me. It was like, I didn't doubt a lot. I felt that now, okay, now we have to do whatever, like, and all go to fight. And we, we were, maybe I was a bit naive at that time. I, I thought that now we can stop Russians pretty fast with all help, with all support. And there are many volunteers, like people who decided to go to fight. You know, it was not like 2014, like when we had army in really bad states. And so I believe that we like really need to make best efforts that we can stop them. And like, of course, three months later, I realized that it will be really long. It's long marathon for years. Yeah, but at that time, I really believed in my decision and in my unit uh, as well. Lots of people who didn't have experience, like military experience. They were like artists, I don't know, IT, as uh, people who were building echo houses. People who were like had different professions, and uh, but they all were really motivated. It was really, really, you know, and we, we had very nice relationships in between. It was like a family. And that's why I I was not like traumatized or like I actually had also some like beautiful time with uh, you know with people who who like 
became your very close friends. Of course, there were lots of moments, also like hard moments. I know that you have lost some of your friends. Yeah, it's the hardest thing because yeah, like four of uh, five guys. Commander died and then Jake died and then... Yeah, because it was not that uh, hard to... Okay, it can be cold. Cold is uh, the, the most terrible thing because you can do nothing and then just frozen and uh, like trench and... Uh, yeah, and when it's raining and, uh, and you have to sit for like hours and days and nights in the trench. But um, the most, the hardest thing is when you're losing friends. Yeah, it changed some, maybe it changed me in a way that it, it can clarify what's important. So what's important for you? You decided to make movies again. There are lots of factors. We just, um, before Russians uh, bombed our, our military base, we went to Kiev to learn uh, drone operating. The day we had to go back, my commander called me and said that our military base, base bombed and our comrade died there. And we went there, like, taking some, like, uh, it was complete ruin and we were trying to, trying, we were trying to save some things from this ruined building. And after my commander said that, okay, that's the end of our volunteer battalion. So we have to like officially start like be like part of regular army and contracts called for mobilization. I don't know. The, after we brought our like body of our friends to Berlin to funeral ceremony and I had time to think. And at the same time, my son and my mother, they came back from France and my husband also. And we had a long talk about, okay, what will be next? And I had to decide if I will go as a contract and I will like go for two years, I don't know. Or at the time it was even like contract was like without limit of time. Or that I should finish, we you know, not fade away first. It was also, of course, I felt that it, it would be not right if I would just abandon this project. And I felt that it's, of course, important to finish this film and to share this story. That's why I decided that I will first finish the film and after I will decide what I will do. So then we started to continue editing. And uh, when I watched Rough Cut, because just before Full Scale Invasion, we made uh, like Rough Cut three hours, like really, really like stru more structured. It was not like film. And I watched it and I was so sad, realizing that all this world is not existing anymore. It's all like destroyed and occupied. Yeah, and of course we had to completely rebuild the story because this background, this dramatic background, of course changed a lot. And I perceived it also very differently. Yeah. Alisa, you said that you had been very motivated to join the voluntary unit. But how do the Ukrainians feel about the war now? It's almost two years of the full-scale Russian invasion. There are different categories, I think, of people. There are people like my father, for example. My father always wanted to believe uh, in uh, all this warm shower of news of, you know, our smartphone. Crazy. It's like, uh, you know, telling that everything will be good. And like, you know, some people need this hope and they need this warm bath, I don't know, like uh, to believe. And it's, there is this category of people, yeah, maybe we need this smartphone, but I really don't agree with this like positive information or like the politics like uh, create this positive picture. 
fat people also who burn out emotionally. It's not that they realize that they burn out, but you can see that they are really under stress all the time as they are trying to do their best. And especially at the beginning, you are thinking, okay, it's like a short distance run. Many people used all of their energy. And when you know that it's like, I don't know, thousands kilometers marathon, and after like 100 meters fast run, you already don't have oxygen. And I, I, I feel that lots of people like lacking this oxygen. There are some realists. I'm like one of them. What it means to be a realist in this situation? Know that you have to accept that it will be long. There is no need to believe in Paramoga tomorrow. It's just everyday work. It's hard work and you have to accept it. But do you believe in victory? I believe in victory, but I believe in work today. I don't want to think about victory because because then it kind of like I read one article about psychological thing. If you think too much about dream of Paramoga, somehow it's like make you more relaxed and that you consider that it's like already part of reality. And uh, But I just feel uh, more for routine work. I can see that lots of people are very, very tired, emotionally tired. And uh, especially because we don't know how long it will be. And this seems that God estimates the time. It really exhausts you a lot. And uh, you cannot build long-term plans. You cannot dream. Neither you nor I are military strategists, but how satisfied are you with the support that the Western allies provide to Ukraine? All support came pretty late. It's like uh, we need, for example, F-16. I don't know. We needed it like six months ago, but they will be in one year. Like Storm Shadow, we needed like early. So everything arrived like late, uh, and uh, that's the biggest problem. Maybe if. Like the support we receive, like an early stage, maybe we could advance more. And now, like I see that we are like going to positional war. And uh, actually, what Zaluzhny uh, an interview said to the economist, I saw it already five months ago. Many people really wanted to believe in this miracle of counteroffensive operation, but it was clear that uh, it won't be a miracle. Yeah, but we already have consequences of this slow help. It's like a little bit. Okay, we will give you a little bit. Do you think that the West is still afraid of Russia? And that's why it gives just a little bit? It's like not escalate much. Like we will give you this, but you cannot do with this, open this. And it's like, we kind of support you, but don't go too far. Like, you know, and this is like schizophrenic uh, thing. Like, or you want us to win, I don't know, to push them or what. Because otherwise, we really, we will have this war for years. Like, which will be really positional war and uh, it will only help Russia because they have the industry, they are making lots of forms and new rockets and everything. While we we cannot produce, uh, we have lots of problems with producing our gold weapon. And uh, so we really need the support, like, enough and uh, in time. But you are visiting Slovakia and the country has a new government that clearly stated that Bratislava won't send more military aid to Ukraine. And of course, Slovakia cannot stop the others as they will continue. But still, we are in NATO, in the EU, and maybe it shows that the unity of the West can erode. And we hear lots of lashing and bashing of Ukraine from the new government that Ukraine is super corrupt and so on. If you would have a chance to talk to the 
Slovak Prime Minister Robert Fico. How would you explain that maybe, not maybe, I think, he is wrong? How would you explain to him that he is wrong regarding sending military aid to Ukraine? I already said in the previous question about the trip in time, but of course, like about corruption, of course, we have corruption. I don't want to say that it's all like uh, great and we are only heroes in Ukraine. Unfortunately, no. I think the best will be to read actually what Zaluzhny wrote, uh, said the economist and I think he is the best person his information is important that now all kind of governments in Western Europe can read and understand the situation what is happening on the front line I'm not that good expert and uh, I, I remember when we went to counteroffensive operation we didn't have really enough everything and it was really hard and we lost lots of soldiers in these operations and we had to withdraw out like troops it was a miracle because we were on the right flank and we were on forest so from our flank nobody died but from central and left flank lots of soldiers died and uh, it's like suicidal mission to go to the operation having not enough like protection because we are not meet like Russian army so important that the value of life so of our soldiers is uh, probably more important than weapons and and uh, yeah we need more more of this also it's very hard to demand territories also rap I don't know how to translate because Russians uh, use this technology to block signals yeah of course you need jamming systems yeah and they're much more advanced than this we need this yeah I I, I think it's good to read what those Alyssa one last thing as you're an artist there's a debate, and of course also in my country, about how much space we should give Russian art these days. How do you see this? There was a problem with this Russian opposition. Of course, like we have to ban all with the support with ministry and like like I don't know, Minister of Culture of Russia. This like like one hundred percent because then we are actually supporting terrorist state. But if you're talking about opposition, how many? protests did you see in Europe that they made this Russian opposition who are living in Germany like everywhere they just live the like comfort normal life crying and saying that they are suffering so much okay but then at least fight for your freedom I don't know or this impotent worse like statement no war it's like what for all good against all bad you know for like uh, blue sky and for warm nice days i don't know and it's like and this made me very angry okay guys if you want to say okay we are opposition and we don't want to disappear from festivals from cultural life i don't know then do something you should know but you did nothing and that make me angry and that's why i also of course it's my very subjective thing it's like but when i see this like russian opposition people who are, who are only complaining and saying that they're also victims yeah but for me it's like um how to say no it's super pretension i don't believe them no there are maybe i know maybe i don't know some people whom i can count on my two hands and i really appreciate these people and they were very clear in their position from 2014 but there are some people there is one girl like a director who like received lots of money from Ministry of Culture who supports her films and now she's saying 
oh yeah, I'm opposition, I'm victim. You know, like uh, I, I, I don't believe it. Like really, when I when I look at her, it's all like I, I have a feeling that she just lying and like and yeah. So it's all about like uh, act, guys. This was another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. Subscribe, listen on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and on the other platforms. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on Coffee. For the link. See also a description of this episode. Thank you for listening and stay tuned.